Good morning. If you have your Bibles, open them up to James chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 13 through 18 this morning. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. So, so let me, this is a heavy message for this time in the morning. So let me kind of lower the temperature just a moment by asking this question and having you honestly raise your hand. In the past week, how many of you have dealt with a temptation and committed a sin? Raise your hand. All right, keep your hand up. I want you to look around the auditorium. Everybody's got their hand up, all right? Okay, so we can put our hands back down. So in the middle of this text, which is a heavy text, and, and hopefully the Lord convicts me every time I read this text, so hopefully you're going to feel some conviction of the Holy Spirit this morning that there's some things you need to deal with, that, that there's some junk in your life that you need to deal with. You're not alone. And dealing with that junk doesn't mean that you repress it and you, you keep a top on it and a lid on it and you think, I got this, I'm not telling anybody. You saw the hands around the room. So why is it that we feel like we have to deal with our junk by ourselves rather than talking to other people about how they've dealt with their stuff and get help as a band of brothers fighting a cosmic war against evil in our lives to encourage one another to take the mountain together. The devil doesn't want you to have a band of brothers to help you take the mountain because then you might take the mountain. The devil wants you to stay in the corner by yourself to fight a fight that's a lonely fight, that's a depressing fight, that sometimes you feel like you can never win, even though you can through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word. But it's a much better fight when you've got brothers to fight the fight with you. So I just encourage you, as you if you feel conviction this morning... It's not for you just to keep that bottled up to yourself. You're going to have alone time, and then you're going to have church time. Nothing could be greater than for you to talk to the brothers that have come up here with you from your church, that walk through life with you, to say, look, i got to be honest with you. I'm struggling with something. Because when something's messed up, the thing you do to fix it is put light on it, not bury it in the darkness and don't deal with it. It's deal with it. And once you deal with it, you can move past it. So I just encourage you to know we're all in the same boat. And when I preach to you this morning, I'm preaching to myself just as much as I'm preaching to anybody because we all have stuff in our life that we're not proud of. We all have temptations. We all deal with this. I was sitting in my desk, working on a laptop. I heard these words. You make me mad. I looked up from the computer screen into the kitchen area with a little bit of surprise at the blatant honesty of my six-year-old son. I said to him, Samuel, it's just before dinner, and you don't need to have another treat right now. He wanted Cheerios. What he didn't know is the plan for that night was to go out to this place called Young's Jersey Dairy, where we were going to eat some cheese curds and a cheeseburger. And the real treat was to come after that with any one of the 80 flavors or so of ice cream topped with any number of sugary treats that would raise all of our blood pressure levels to unknown proportions. He looked back at me again and he said, You make me mad. I'm sitting there as a dad, wanting something good for my son at the right time, but knowing he doesn't need it right now. And yet all he could sense was, I want it now. And he was mad. How many times in our life 
does an immediate gratification of some earthly desire cause us to reject what a good father and a good God wants to give us at the right time in the right way, which would be much greater and much more enjoyable? title of the message this morning is Temptation Takes, God Gives. Temptation Takes, God Gives. You could state it another way. Sin brings death. God gives life. We know that from theology. We know that from reading the Bible, that sin brought death into the world in the Garden of Eden. Sin is what was the necessity of Christ dying on the cross to cover our sin. Sin is what was yearly atoned for through the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, through the shedding of blood as the remission of sin. Sin brings death. Sin has always brought death. The devil lies to you about what sin really is. He gives you the glorified PR spin on it of the immediate gratification without the end result ever in mind because sin constantly brings death. God constantly gives life. God gave life in the Garden of Eden. He created things. God gives us new life through salvation, when we repent and believe. God brings life and life that we can have it more abundantly. God gives us the good things. God gives us grace and mercy for which we don't deserve and haven't earned. And yet the devil tempts us with things that sucks the life right out of you and brings death. So how foolish for us to pursue those baited hooks of sinful desires when the unchanging God gives only good gifts. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. Would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? Beginning in verse 13 of James chapter 1, it says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Dear Lord, today I pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted and strengthen us where we need to be strengthened. And Lord, that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may have a seat. So in our text this morning, let me tell you where we're headed. We're going to look at understanding temptation from verse 13. We're going to look at understanding ourselves from verses 14 and 15. And then we're going to look at understanding God from verses 16 to 18. So we start here in the text with understanding temptation in verse 13. It says in verse 13, let no one say. We hear that word say again. We understand that the words that come out of our mouth indicate what's in our thought processes. It comes from what's in our heart. We understand that those words come from an overflow of our real attitude. So our words give us that verbal thermometer, that check of what's really in our heart that perhaps we don't want anybody to know is there. 
but it percolates into thoughts. Those thoughts come out as words. And James is saying to us in a book where he talks about the tongue later on, let no one say when he is tempted. Now, it doesn't say if he is tempted in this passage, does it? It says when. We took the, we took the hand check, the hand raise earlier in, in this moment, and all of us raised our hand. We all know this. But the devil wants to isolate you. When you're dealing with your own temptation, the devil does not want you to recognize that you have other brothers that can come alongside you and encourage you, speak truth into your life, help you to walk in the truth. The devil wants to push you off to the side, put you in a corner, make you feel like you're the only one dealing with any form of temptation, that you're all by yourself in this, to lead to some type of anxiety, some type of depression in life because you think you've got problems nobody else has. Now, all of us in this room may not have the exact same issue. All of us in this room may not be dealing with the exact th same thing, but all of us in this, in this room are tempted. It is when we are tempted. It is not if we are tempted. And in verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. And you say, well, I would never say that. But the honest truth is, yes, you would, and you probably have, and we all do. Because we like to blame everything on somebody else, right? It just give you some quotes from, from the past. Will Rogers said this, two great movements in American history, the passing of the buffalo and the passing of the buck, right? Flip Wilson said it this way, the devil made me do it. I think modern society probably says it this way, God made me this way. How many times have you heard somebody say, God made me this way? What that doesn't recognize is that God made us in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, in a perfect scenario and setting where they had the choice to sin or not to sin. That sin nature has come to all of us, and all of us then sin and flee from God naturally. It's what comes natural to us. If we talk about embracing our inner self, well, that's the sin nature that leads us to run away from God and to do bad things and to do evil things. If you have not repented and put your faith in Christ, then I would submit to you, you cannot overcome your own sin because you don't have the power of the Holy Spirit living within you that's actually going to be what works with you to put to death these deeds of the flesh. You're, we're, you're where Romans 7 is, where Paul's talking about trying to live life and trying to pull himself up by his own bootstraps and trying to clean himself up to get good enough to get to God, dealing with all these things. And at the end of Romans 7, Paul says this, Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? In other words, if you don't know Christ, if you haven't come to the point of repenting and putting your faith in Christ, then when you're trying to get yourself cleaned up, you are fighting against your own sin nature and you're fighting a battle you can't win. You're fighting a battle with equipment that has marked on it, flawed, returned to sender. You need to be remade, you need to be reborn, you need to have a new birth, and in that new birth, then the Holy Spirit comes to live within you, and that Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the same Holy Spirit that draws you to salvation, the same Holy Spirit that inspired the text of Scripture, then lives within you so you can read the Bible, and the Bible comes alive to you. The Bible means something to you. You start learning from the text of Scripture. You start transforming your mind so it's not conformed to this world, but it's renewed daily to live life in the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit working together with us then puts to death the deeds of the flesh. Now that word flesh is what we talk about after being saved, after being joined to Christ, instead of the old sin nature. So you have a sin nature that causes you to sin against God. You're separated. You repent and believe. The Spirit comes to live within you. The New Testament talks about the flesh. It's not talking about the skin. 
is talking about that sinful desire that doesn't go away when you get saved. So when you get saved, you are in Christ. You're righteous, but you're still messed up. You still have all sorts of junk going on in your life. You still have the, the, the leftovers of past sin. You still have all of those things. You still have temptations. And in order to overcome those temptations, you lean to the power of the Spirit to overcome your flesh. And that's what has to happen. But we all tend to make excuses for it, and we've done this ever since the beginning of time. In the Garden of Eden, there was a tree. God put the tree there. They wouldn't be robots. They had a real temptation. It was one tree. you got all these trees. You can eat from all these trees. You can do all these things. Just don't eat the one tree. The one tree. That's it. One out of all of them. And what does Adam and Eve do? Eve goes to the tree, a talking serpent, which is weird enough, as it is, most beautiful creature in the garden, which probably means it didn't look like those slimy snakes that we see nowadays, talks to Eve, and Eve eats of the forbidden fruit. And Adam stands there, not doing his manly responsibility of protecting his household and leading well, but Adam stands there and allows Eve to eat. Instead of saying to Eve at some point in time, Eve, don't listen to the goofy talking serpent, all right? That serpent is leading us in the wrong direction. Adam kind of sits back like, okay, let's see what happens to her. Let's check this out and see how it goes. And she eats, and, and then Adam decides she's really pretty. She's the prettiest girl in all of the earth, so I'm going to follow her rather than follow God. She really was the most beautiful woman on earth, and he could say that, and he wasn't telling a lie. He knew it because she's the only woman on earth. And so he follows Eve, eats after it. God comes along. God comes and doesn't go to Eve first, right? Guys, leaders of your homes, responsible ones, even when it goes bad and it may not be your fault in your mind, God comes to Adam. Adam, where are you? Adam's hiding. Don't play hide and seek with God. You never win. Adam's hiding. God knows exactly where he is. He doesn't need to ask Adam, where are you? Or Adam, what have you done? But he does. And what does Adam say? Adam says, that woman. But he doesn't just blame Eve. He blames God. Have you ever looked at the words? That woman whom you made. In other words, God, if you had made a better woman, this wouldn't have happened. It's your fault. And how many of us in our own circumstances oftentimes think to God, God, if you had made me better, this wouldn't have happened. It's your fault. You're getting what you created. But that's not the case because this, we, James tells us we can't blame God. It's not God's fault. So what did Eve do? Eve, oh, that serpent. That serpent, God, it's his fault. And so goes all of us as we pass the buck to our circumstances, to our past, to things that have happened to us, to our own sinful nature, even to God as we say, God, it's not my fault. So to understand temptation from verse 13, you have to expect temptation. It's when, it's not if. And you cannot blame God for your temptation. So if God is not responsible for our temptation, who is? That's exactly where James goes in understanding ourselves in verses 14 and 15. In verse 14, he says this. But each person. Notice he says each person. Okay, the bad news is none of you get out of this. Every last one of you, each person is going to be tempted. I'm going to be tempted. Your pastors are going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted. We're all going to be tempted. Each person is going to be tempted. And then it says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. 
Each one of us is lured and enticed. Now, if I were to go around the room right now, or perhaps if you were to have those little, those little bubbles pop up above your head that showed us your temptation, we would have different temptations. Some of us are more prone and tempted to gossip. Some of us are more prone and tempted to pride. Some may te- be tempted to alcohol or drug abuse. Some may be tempted to pornography. Some may be tempted to sexual desires or fantasies or any number of other things. But it was that great country music theologian, Kenny McChesney, who said, it's your favorite sins that do you in, right? So there's a point here to be made. It's not something that you struggle with that I don't struggle with that's a temptation for me. Some of you might like coconut. I hate coconut. I'm allergic to it, actually. It's what I tell people anyway, because it creates this bad taste in my mouth every time I eat it. And so that's an allergic reaction of some sort anyway. It's not scientific, but it's fun. Uh, and, and when you tell people you're allergic to it, they don't say, oh, but you've never tried mine, right? They just give you something different. So I'm allergic to coconut. That's not a temptation for me. Some of you may like coconut. I don't understand why that you are created as such a flawed individual. But if you like coconut, you, you can have at it. All of it. It's yours, all right? Have a way. Your temptation may not be my temptation, but we all have temptation, so each one of us is tempted. And the words lured and enticed here talk about their hunting and fishing terms. These are guys' terms. You think about luring and enticing. You think about trapping or ensnaring. You think about, as we were driving up, I saw some guy setting up to hunt geese. He was out in the middle of a, of a field, and he had all these decoys out, and he had some of the spinning wings. He was attracting in some geese. He's going to lure those geese in, and what's he going to do to those geese? If, if he's any good, he's going to take them out, right? I mean, he's going to shoot. He's going to raise up out of this blind, this coffin blind. He's going to start shooting as they come in. Now, I, I like to fish. I'm from the south, so I don't, I don't fish for northern or, or walleye like maybe in the lake here, but I like to fish for largemouth bass. Now, when you fish for largemouth bass, how many of you fish for largemouth bass? Is that, okay, so this, I'm talking, most of you guys know what I'm talking about. So you can take about a two-inch hook uh, when you fish the way I fish, which is Texas rig with a plastic worm. So you take about a two-inch hook, you get about a seven-inch or a nine-inch, depending on what you want, plastic worm. And it, they look real. I mean, they even make the tail a little squiggly sometimes, so it creates the right action as it goes through the water. You kind of hook it through, and then you pull it up, and you hook it back into the worm. So the worm's kind of sitting like this, and the hook comes down, and the hook's buried back up into the worm. So then when you throw that uh, into the water, you've got a sinker on it. It sinks it to the bottom, and then you're pulling it along. And I, I love it because you can feel what's on the bottom of the lake as you're pulling it along. You can feel the different types of soil. You can feel a rock as you hit it, pulling it up over a limb. You can kind of get to where you can tell exactly what's happening. So you're pulling this worm. Now, this worm is strategically designed with different colors so that it entices this fish. And and it looks like a real worm. It looks like a perfect worm. In fact, these plastic worms look better than any worm I've ever pulled out of any box to put on. I've never seen a nine-inch worm that I could hook onto it that has perfect action every moment as it goes through the water. But these plastic worms, they're perfect. And they even have this stuff that you can spray on these plastic worms. And I I buy this stuff. I, I don't know why I buy this stuff because it's supposed to have a smell that attracts the fish. But have you ever thought about that? Have you ever smelled lake water? How in the world does a fish smell what you just put on a plastic worm? And does, I don't even think a fish can smell. I mean, science, I, I think they just market this stuff and tell us they can smell because we can smell. And we smell it and we think it's better. And so we buy it and they make money and they don't care. But I put it on a worm one time and a bass bought it. A bass uh, 
got a hold of that worm, and I caught the big bass, and so I buy it every time I go now. And so <laughs> scientifically proven to work, right? And so I, I put this stuff on this worm, and, and you can see it even drip into the water, and it creates this, this uh, area where it drips into the water. I, I don't know if bass even like it, but I buy it. I put it on. I throw the worm out. I begin to pull that worm slowly in. As I pull that worm in, you feel that nibble. If you've ever bass fished, it, it's like a dance. I mean, you feel that nibble, and, and that rod just kind of taps in, and you want to give it a little bit, so make sure you get it in its mouth, and you reel down. And then with these largemouth bass, you, you jerk like there's no tomorrow. It's not some little bitty jerk like you're doing some top water or something. I mean, you reel down, and you pull to your chest, and you jerk like you're going to pull that thing right in the boat. Hits into those big jaws of that largemouth bass, and the fight is on. Pull that bass in. That bass that's probably been living in those waters for years, sitting in those same holes, eating those little goofy worms, those ugly-looking things. They're brown, and they don't look anything like these plastic worms I buy. You know, some of them are purple with red and orange tails. I mean, they're beautiful creations. They're works of art. And All of a sudden, he sees that worm coming through the water, and he's enticed. That's the prettiest worm I've ever seen. It's got good smelling stuff on it, too. I, I, I can't resist. And, and that bass goes after that worm. Next thing you know, that bass is in the boat. And what happens? Well, that bass is in trouble because he didn't get caught by some nice catch and release fisherman. He got caught by a guy that likes to fillet and grill bass with lemon pepper on the grill and eat those puppies. So that bass is done. <laughs> and that illustration of what we do Hunting or fishing is what James is saying happens to us when we are tempted by our own desires. Your desire wiggles by you. And you say, you know what, I, th- I think I, c- I could get away with it. I, I, really, I really want that. I-, I really want that right now. And inside of you, there's this tsunami of temptation and desire that wells up inside your soul that causes you to want to pursue something that in your mind you may know is not good for you. But you still want to do it so much so that we even talk about in our society the expression, I took the bait. The trap was laid. I sprung it. And at that moment, we are enticed and we are lured and we give in. We even tell ourselves this lie sometimes. At least I find myself saying this. The temptation gets great, and the pull is strong, and I think in my own mind, you know what, if I just give in to it, it'll go away. If I just do it this one time, I can manage it, it'll go away. That temptation, I, I, I've got to go, I've got, I've got to spring, you've got to act, it's like that lineman on the line, and, and, the, and the quarterback's doing the extended count, and it's hut, 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 and every time the word with the H comes out, there's a, there's a motion that wants to jump, and all of a sudden we jump. But brothers, what it's saying to us here in the text is it's saying each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's our desire. It's that flesh. We are our biggest problem. I am my biggest spiritual problem. My spiritual growth is limited by me and my mess more than anything else in this life my own flesh, my own sinful nature. And then it says, then this desire when conceived 
gives birth to sin. So when we give into that desire thinking, oh, it'll go away, I can handle it, I can manage it, I can make peace with it, what this is saying is that gives birth to sin, and then when that sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. So what James is saying to you is he's saying to you when that temptation comes, you have to recognize it as temptation. You have to notice that you are lured and you are enticed by your own desires. And it's at that moment that you recognize that, that you plead to your heavenly Father. You plead to the power of the Holy Spirit. You reach out to the fellow band of brothers in your church. And you say to them, brothers, I need some help. I do not need to give in to this because when you give in to that temptation, he uses that metaphor of giving birth. It is conceived. And when it comes forward, it gives birth. And when it gives birth, then it brings death. Now, I have, I have in my hand an acorn. Can you see this acorn? You can see that? So this acorn, does this, does this acorn look strong to you? They're not, are they? We, we take them and throw them at other people sometimes if we're having fun as kids or we squash them or we pop the tops off of them or we peel them because they're just little acorns, right? But you take the little acorn and you bury the little acorn in the right soil and you allow that acorn to grow up into a sapling. Now, a sapling, it's, it's there. Any boy can take a sapling and bend a sapling over Perhaps if the boy is strong enough, he could take a sapling and pull it out of the ground with a few little roots, and it's no big deal. But you let that sapling from this acorn grow and fester and mature into a full-grown oak tree, and 10 of you can't bring down a full-grown oak tree. You look at the, the devastation from a tornado or a hurricane where these big oak trees have fallen over and there are dents in the ground and the root balls pull up and there are gigantic holes left in that situation. And what James is saying to us here, brothers, is he's saying to us that when that temptation then is conceived and it brings forth sin and that sin is allowed to go, it brings forth destruction in our lives. And there may be some of you sitting here right now in this auditorium that you have allowed that sin to bring forth death and been conceived in your life and it's growing in your life and it's maturing into some great big oak tree and this oak tree in your life to remove it is going to create a big hole. There are going to be roots. There might be devastation. And I'm still here to tell you, you got to get the sin out of your life. That sin will lead you down a road to death and to destruction. And if you're in here right now and you've got a hidden long-term sin that you think nobody knows about, the Lord tells you that one day all of these things are going to be found out. And there is no better place than right here, right now, headed to alone time here in a few minutes, to deal with your own sin and to cry out to God and say, God, I don't want this in my life. I want this uprooted. I want this removed. I want this out of my life. And then to walk into church time with your fellow brothers who are on your team, your band of brothers taking this spiritual hill together, and to say to them, brothers, I need your help. I need you to hold me accountable. I need you to pray for me. I need you to walk with me. I need you to be there together with me because I want to live my life for Christ. I don't want to have this in the middle of my life holding me back from serving him. Bonhoeffer, in his book entitled Temptation, describes it this way. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity 
or desire for revenge, or love of fame and power, or greed for money. Joy in God is extinguished in us, and we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. Satan does not here fill us with a hatred of God, but with a forgetfulness of God. Thus, lust aroused, envelops the mind and the will in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. The questions present themselves. Is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? Is it really not permitted to me? Yes, even expected of me. Here and now in my particular situation to appease this desire? It is here that everything within me rises up against the Word of God. And that's what we do. The temptation comes. We want it. We like it. We enjoy it. It's our favorite sins. And in our mind, we justify our actions and rise up against what God's Word says and rebel against His Word. It tells us that we should understand temptation, that we should understand ourselves, and also that we need to understand God. Look at what it says in verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived. James is writing to us saying, brothers, don't be deceived. He's not mad at us at this point in time like he was last night. He doesn't say, come on, man. Here he says, beloved brothers. This is a guy who understood temptation, writing to other people who are going to understand temptation, and he's saying to them, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. He's saying to you that the devil wants us to think that God is a cosmic killjoy, that God is somebody that puts a bunch of rules on you to say, don't have fun, when in essence, God is the one that gives you good gifts and perfect gifts, and it's the devil that is seeking to deceive you. And it's the devil that is seeking to enslave you. And it's the devil that wants to entice you. The devil is the fisherman with the hook. The devil is the one who has set up the decoys in the field to destroy you. The devil is the one who is already defeated. And he's mad that he's defeated. And so he's going to destroy and take down as many people as he possibly can. The devil is the father of lies. The devil is the evil one. And God is the good one who is the word of truth. God is the one that gives good and perfect gifts. And how, why is it too often that we want to believe the lies of the devil instead of the truth of the Bible? We want to give in to the lies of the devil that entrap us, that harm us that deceive us and do ourselves harm over the long run rather than believing the truth that comes from God who is the father who gives good gifts and perfect gifts they come from above they come down from the father of lights and it says with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change aren't you glad that God doesn't change if you feel right now that you are farther away from God than you have been at some point in time in the past, God is not the one that's moved. If you are not as close to God as you've ever been, it's not God's fault. This is where our own flesh and our own desires and our own sinful temptations cause us to flee away from God and have moments where we are not pursuing God in the same way. God doesn't change. God is there. God is immovable. God is not going to change at all. We can trust what He says is true, and we should be thankful that God is the one that doesn't change yesterday, today, or tomorrow. It says here, He's the Father of lights with whom no variation or shadow due to change. 
of his own will, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Now, what is the word of truth? This phrase occurs many times throughout Scripture. It occurs in Ephesians 1.13. It says this, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. The word of truth is the gospel. Colossians 1, 5 and 6 says it this way. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. Now, many people want to look at James, and they want to think about James as being a book that talks about works. And it does talk about works. It talks about how if you are truly saved, you are going to work for God. It does not talk about works-based salvation. And here in this verse, we see that clearly. It's of God's own will that he brought us forth by the gospel, by the word of truth, that we should be a first fruits of his creatures. God is a good God. God is a God that speaks truth through the word of truth. The devil, his name, diabolos, the liar, the accuser, the deceptive one. The one who in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, in the form of a serpent, deceived Eve, tricked her. Are you going to believe today the devil, the trickster, the lying one who wants to deceive you and destroy you and entice you and entrap you? Or are you going to believe the word of truth from the one who never changes, the one who is always there, the father of lights, the one who gives good and perfect gifts? In our mind, in a moment like this, when we read these things, there is no no way that we would give in to the devil. There's no comparison here. The one who's going to lie to you, trick you, never be there, who always is changing, who just wants to destroy you, or the one who gives good gifts that loves you and wants what's best for you. It's easy. We choose God. But the problem is our temptation doesn't come to us often in times like this where we're reading the Bible. The temptation comes late at night when we're all alone because the devil understands how to play the game very, very well. In the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Rings, there's this scene that's called Farewell to Bilbo Baggins. It's with the passing of everything, including the ring that he's going to give to Frodo Baggins. Now, if you don't know about the Lord of the Rings trilogy, this ring is a ring that is of destruction. It, it destroys people. It brings out the absolute worst in people. This ring represents and personifies sin. So when you're, when you're watching these movies or when you're reading these books, you recognize that this ring is a ring that is, is just pure sinful. And so I've got a clip for you that I want to show you that just kind of explains how sometimes we have a desire for the ring. How sometimes we look at God as though he wants to keep us away from things that are good, when in reality he only wants what is good for us. Can you roll the clip? (laughs) I suppose you think that was terribly clever. Come on, Gandalf. Did you see their faces? There are many magic rings in this world, Bilbo Baggins, and none of them should be used lightly. It was just a bit of fun. Oh, you're probably right, as usual. You will keep an eye on Frodo, won't you? Two eyes. Yes. As often as I can spare them. I'm leaving everything to him. What about this ring of yours? 
Is that stain too? Yes, yes. Stain an envelope over there on the mantelpiece. No. Wait, it's... here in my pocket. Isn't that, isn't that odd now? Yeah. After all, why not? Why shouldn't I keep it? I think you should leave the ring behind, Luma. Is that so hard? Well, no. Who's managed to get angry? Well, if I'm angry, it's your fault. It's mine. My own. My precious. Precious? It's been called that before, but not by you. Oh, what business is it of yours when I do with my own things? I think you've had that ring quite long enough. You want it for yourself? Come Baggins! Do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. I am not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. I thought up an ending for my book. And he lived happily ever after, to the end of his days. And I'm sure you will, my dear friend. Goodbye, Gandalf. Goodbye, dear Bubba. so attached to your own sin that you would call it my precious? Do you have that ring of sin tucked into your pocket? Are you willing today, here, now, in your personal time as you take it in a few minutes, to take that ring of sin and to drop that ring of sin and let it go and to give it up? 
Are, are you at a point when the Lord tells you to give it up that you look back at God and you, you call God a, a conjurer of cheap tricks? As though he's trying to rob you of what will bring you joy instead of actually giving you the truth of what will really bring joy and satisfaction and meaning in life? Will you give up the ring? Is it so hard? And all of us together answer, well, no. And yes. Today I ask you, I urge you, I plead on behalf of your soul, on behalf of God, on behalf of the good gifts he gives to let go of the ring, to drop the ring. It is after the ring has dropped that Bilbo says he has a new title. It is he lived happily ever after to the end of his days. It's not a fairy tale. It is a journey. But brothers, together, even though we may stumble, even though we may fall together, we can walk through the power of the Word and the power of the Holy Spirit and the bond of brothers, a band of brothers together. We can take that spiritual hill. We can let go of that ring of sin. We can put to death those deeds of the flesh. But you have to be willing to take that first step. You have to be willing to let go of the ring. Is it still in your pocket? Just a few moments. You're going to go off and find some time for you to deal with God alone. My invitation to you, my challenge to you is this. You know your sin. I, I don't need to call them all out. The Holy Spirit has probably vividly brought to mind whatever it is you're dealing with. I want you to pray and ask God to deal with your sin, to take away your sin, to give the ring up to him. And then when you go to church time, I want you to tell your brothers, brothers, I'm, I'm dealing with a few things that I need, to, I need to let you know about. That as a band of brothers here today, we can commit to say we will take that hill together. We will let go of the ring of sin. For it's God who doesn't change, who gives us good and perfect gifts who wants what's best for us, for this life, and the one to come, by the power of the gospel. Let's pray. Dear God, we are all prone to sin. Lord, our hearts are prone to wonder. We feel it, and we know it. So God, I pray for myself and for all of those who are here in the room that you would help us to be honest with ourselves this morning, that you would help us to have the faith and the courage to let go of the ring of sin in our own lives. Lord, convict us where we need to be convicted and give us the faith to trust you, to believe you, to put to death this flesh, to live in the power of the Spirit. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.